Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Hui Ting. I'm excited to have you on the show. We had such a wonderful coffee last time around that I felt like we did have to have another conversation of a podcast. And so I'd love for you to introduce yourself in a short one minute. Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, I had a really great conversation with you the last time around too. So I'm glad we were able to do this. So I'm Hui Ting. I am currently a partner at Altara Ventures, which is an early stage Southeast Asia fund. We invest across essentially sector agnostic Series A. Amazing. How did you get started in kind of like the world of technology and startups? When did that interest begin for you? Actually, a while ago, I spent a lot of time as a brand manager at Unilever. So I probably spent about eight years in kind of like the brand management and advertising space. And at the time, I would get decks that I'd see from my dad and he would say, what do you think of this company? And so that's kind of, that was the first taste, I guess, of of what a pitch deck looks like. And actually in 2017, when I was still in New York with Unilever, I said to myself, okay, I love this job. I cannot imagine a better job, but I thought ahead 10 years and I said, I'm very good at what I'm doing. I can probably do it with my eyes closed. Where would I be in 10 years? And I probably could see myself you know, as a category manager or maybe a VP or SVP for a large category, maybe globally. But at the end of the day, I realized that I would still be selling mass market shampoo, ice cream, toothpaste. (laughs) And that did not feel exciting for me at all. It was exciting from the sense that I knew I would get a lot of job satisfaction. But in terms of a greater purpose, it felt very empty. And so I decided to quit my job at Unilever and literally just chose to travel the world for a little bit because I wanted to kind of see where the cards would fall and what would bubble up to the surface if I had no safety net to, let's say, fall back on a different job. I think, I don't know whether it's being brought up in Asia, but you know, I was always brought up with the idea that you must have a second option before you leave your first job. It makes you more marketable, you're, it's easier for you to get a job. But I also knew that whatever that option was, it was always going to be made with the decision to, I need to leave my job or I want to leave my job. Those options never really planned out, panned out well for me. Not that it didn't pan out well, but there was always something about the job that eventually, you know, maybe one or two years in, I'd get annoyed about and frustrated about. So I really wanted to put myself in a space where there was barely any safety net in terms of a job security. I was based in the US. I knew I would have to give up my work visa. I knew I would have to ship myself out of the country within a month. And that's actually how I ended up getting into venture because it was all very serendipitous. I was in this phase of follow the energy. (laughs) And I literally just decided to take meetings and do things with people that left me feeling energized and positive after. So that, you know, I was back in Singapore after I left the US in between travel and a friend of mine said, 
you must be really bored, right? Because you're just sitting around doing nothing. And I said, no, actually, I'm not that bored because there's a lot of things to do. And she's like, well, why don't you just come with me to this meeting? I'm going to meet this founder. And I said, okay, sure, you know. Um, I, so I went with my friend to the meeting. At the time, my family was beginning to think about setting up a family office. And, and um, we have a history of also doing a lot of angel investments. So I guess for founders, they kind of knew that, hey, this is potentially somebody new who might want to invest in my business. And so that one meeting with that one founder turned into meeting a whole bunch of other founders in a very short span of time. So I probably met like a hundred over founders within a month or so because I was so energized from that first meeting that I had all these founders reaching out to me. I was reaching out to other founders and I had planned it such that I was doing a meeting every hour, every day from Monday to Friday, including breakfast, lunch, and sometimes dinner. So from nine to six or nine to seven, I was doing, you know, essentially nine, nine or eight or nine meetings a day from Monday to Friday. I remember I was staying at home and my mom was like, what are you doing all day? Are you going to the beach? <laughs> I was like, I'm definitely going to the beach. <laughs> but I was, I remember I would come back and I would feel so energized, but so exhausted. But then wake up the next day going, okay, who am I going to meet today? Because I just loved kind of getting to know the founders, hearing their stories, understanding what they were trying to do, what they were trying to build, and how that was going to actually positively impact the lives of people that either use their product or service or interact it with, you know, whatever enterprise software that they were, they were trying to build. At the time, a lot of the companies, I think, were B2C. So it was also a lot more up my alley, given my consumer background. So I thought it was very interesting. And they felt like I had something to contribute. And to me, that was a surprise because I had gone into these meetings thinking, you know, I'm just a brand manager. I don't know anything about your business. I don't know how to run a business. But that's kind of when I realized, actually, I did quite learn a lot about running a business as a brand manager. So I probably did not give myself the credit <laughs> up until then. <laughs> What's interesting is that obviously you had that experience as a brand manager. And I think a lot of folks in Southeast Asia have that experience, right? Their first job is with P&G or Unilever. And what's interesting is that you're saying that that experience did translate to some of these later insights. Could you share a little bit more about what things I think you learned from your time as a brand manager that you felt, I think, prepared you or was relevant for your role in startup land? Yeah, I think the one thing that I learned was to really discern what is a consumer want versus a consumer need. And the distinct difference is that a consumer can tell you what they want, but they might not necessarily be able to tell you what they want to use in order to service their need. So for example, and the best way to think about this and, and what I always come back to is, uh, is there a product or service that you use today that you didn't realize that you needed or wanted until you actually started using it? For me, that's the iPhone. I didn't think I needed an iPhone. I, had, I went around for the longest time with like a Razer flip phone, right? <laughs> and I was like, I'm happy I can play Snake <laughs> on the phone. But then when the iPhone came out, it was like a game changer for everybody because, and especially for me, because what was interesting was not realizing how much you needed this thing before you actually used it and before you actually had it. And to me, that's like a true 
sticky consumer product. And that is because it's a consumer product that has literally answered the needs of a person versus the wants of a person. The wants can change over time and they are why you have trends and you have fads. But a need is an inherent thing that doesn't go away. And if you can develop a product or a service that actually speaks to a consumer need, you're going to have a product that is so much more sticky. You're going to not need to do a lot of marketing in order to get traction. And you're going to have loyalty. And if you package that together with good design, good design thinking, strategic thinking about how you want to talk to your customer and make them feel like you are talking with them as opposed to talking at them, then you're going to get very loyal customers who then will buy it, whatever you produce later on, even if it's not as successful as the initial product. This is really interesting because wants versus needs is something that we kind of know when we learn, when we grow up, but I think it's very different to apply this, I think, kind of like in broader ways. Mm. Would you say that it's better to deliver what consumers want versus delivering what consumers need, I guess? Because it feels like it's a weird space. i give you an example. It would be like, cigarettes are more compelling than <laughs> cigarette prevention programs, for example, or even smoking cessation programs. Mm. So how would, do you think about approaching that? So I think you have to think about it from the point of view of what is the need that is being fulfilled when a consumer smokes? Because the need is not, does the consumer need to smoke? The need is, what inherent need is he trying to fulfill when he smokes? That's a different way of looking at it. And, and I'm not a smoker, so I can't tell, really tell you. But let's, let's look at, let's, let's come back to the Apple example. Why does anybody need, maybe at our age, we don't feel a need to own an Apple product, but think back to, you know, when you were 18 or 19 and put yourself in the place, in the position of an 18, 19 year old today, you're getting your first paycheck and you're like, I need to buy an Apple iPhone because I want to buy an Apple iPhone. They'll say, I want to buy an Apple iPhone, but that's not a want. It's a want, but it's powered by a need. And the need is to feel accept it. It's to feel the same as their friends. It's to feel I have made it. I was able to make enough money to buy myself an Apple iPhone. And it's about self-validation. It's about self-esteem. It's about being seen. It's about feeling part of the group. And so all of those are needs. So if you can figure out what are those real needs, which these are what we call insights-led needs, that you can identify. And it doesn't have to stick with a consumer product. It doesn't have to end with a consumer product. There's always a need that's being fulfilled or an intrinsic insight that's being fulfilled, even if you are delivering like a B2B enterprise SaaS product. Because at the end of the day, there's a human on the other end that's making a decision as to whether do we pay $5,000 annually for a subscription for the whole team to use this product. And so that decision maker has to, we have to speak to his need for the product, even if it's not a consumer product. How should founders be more thoughtful about that? Because the truth is, so many startups we meet kind of like muddle those two parts. And the gentle way of saying is that they did not achieve product market fit Mm. and therefore they failed, right? I think that's a very common failure point for pre-seed and seed and even, you know, Series A startups, right, at some level. Mm -hmm. Uh, So how do you coach or help founders kind of like reach that understanding, maybe from a process perspective? So I have literally asked founders, why does your product need to exist? 
And what would your consumer use if your product did not exist today? And if they can say, oh, they would probably do this and they would probably do that. And I'm like, okay, so then why should I need to use your product? Tell me, show me why. And sometimes it's hard to tell. Sometimes it's about the user experience. Sometimes the, the founder has said, I have built something that is so much more intuitive than what you're using today. And that will also work. That will also answer the need. Because you will find consumers who want something less clunky, something that's more efficient, something that they feel understands them. So even if you have an AI program that says, I just tried out this um, new enterprise product that essentially helps arrange your calendar. And I tried it out. And if, if you can use a product that actually makes you feel like, hey, this program understands my needs for the day and will help me arrange my schedule according to what I would like, that is very useful for me. And it's not that competition cannot exist, but if you can deliver the service or the product or the experience in a much better way that makes it sticky for the consumer. Sticky because the consumer then realizes, what did I do before I used this product? How did I, I can't imagine that I had to talk to my assistant to move my meetings around. Then that becomes a sticky product, even though there might be other competitors in the market. And I think the tricky part, of course, is that, you know, I think we also noticed that some founders figure it out and then they kind of lose track of it along the way, right? Mm. Or at least somehow it seems to be weird. You know, they seem to get, become more distant from it. Why, what are your feelings about that? Or do you have any advice for people going through that process? I think you're asking what happens with founders who kind of lose the plot. And to me, sometimes that is synonymous or maybe that goes hand in hand with founders who drink the Kool-Aid <laughs> too much. I, I mean, I invest into early stage companies, so thankfully I haven't had any founders get there yet. So I can't speak from my own experience as to how I would have coached those founders, but I do always just come back to the five whys. And I might not necessarily have posed this to the founders, Specifically, but in, you know, in my own my own head, when I think about does this business still make sense today? Would I still invest in this business today? Why would I still invest in this business? And then it goes into the five whys of why does the business need to exist? Should it still exist? You know, all that kind of stuff. And that's how I built my own conviction. You know, especially when it comes to like follow on rounds of funding, should we still invest in this business today? Does this business still make sense? Is it still relevant? Why is it still relevant? How does it compete with the comp competitors? Do I still believe in the vision? Do they still believe in the vision? And I think one of the most important things that I learned is don't just speak to the founder about their vision. One of the things that I like to do is I would like to speak to all of their heads, you know, as many people as possible in the team, whether it's senior or heads of department, especially because it's head of department. And I always ask the same question and I usually try and see if they give me the same answer as the founder. And so I'll usually always ask, why do you think we're doing this business? What do you like about this business? Why are you involved in this business? And if everyone can give me the same answer, then I know that the entire company by and large is unified behind the single vision and that they know why they're doing what they're doing, which is so important at the end of the day, because especially for founders who are running super fast growing startups, they can't be involved in every single aspect of the business. They have to delegate and they have to trust their business heads to do the right thing. But you can only do the right thing if you are all aligned to the same North Star. 
And that's where the vision for the business needs to come through. And that's why you need to have a very simple need that is being answered for why the business exists. Because then that means that everybody in the company can get behind this vision and it's easier for everyone to understand what it is that we're trying to work towards. What's interesting is that there's different layers, and I think I like the phrase drinking your own Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah. And I totally get it, what call it copium these days, or hopium. <laughs> You're selling, selling, selling to customers, and then you didn't ask the customer what they want. Mm. And I actually was watched that recently at a dinner party, and <laughs> this founder was selling, 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 and then I was like, I asked prospective customer, I was like, what's your number one problem? And the number one problem was like totally different, right, from the solution. How do you have that conversation, I guess, with founders or if you're like a co-founder or you're an executive team member. But, you know, like when you're in a situation where someone's drinking their own Kool-Aid, how do you broach that conversation? How do you approach it in a way that obviously is respectful, but also mm. helps like kind of reset the conversation to like, what are the actual consumer wants? Yeah. What are the actual consumer needs? What we actually can deliver and what we hope to deliver? So there's different ways of doing it. Most of the time I try to remind myself. I, I try really hard not to go into operator mode because that's what I know, right? So I'm like, I have the solution for this. <laughs> but I have to remind myself that I'm not the operator now. I'm on the other side. I'm the investor, right? And so I look at my role very much as a coach. I have to suggest. I have to encourage. And so I will usually try to say to the founder, actually don't think that that might be true. I would suggest that you talk to your consumer, do a focus group. Make sure that the need that you say you are solving is an actual problem for the consumer. And what I usually say to them is just because you build it doesn't mean that they will come. I get that you think that your product is amazing, and it is in itself, if it is actually answering a real need, and it has to be a real need. And then I tie it back to, now you're talking to a VC, the real thing that you, we are concerned about is whether it's venture-backable. There are lots of businesses that make money that aren't necessarily venture-backable because we're obviously venture capitalists. We're looking for a certain return on our fund. That's a different story of constraints. But at the end of the day, sometimes I've had to have the conversation with the founder. Decide for yourself if you want to be a venture-backed business or you just want to have a nice income for yourself because either one of those things are okay and how you build your business will be different. What you want to do with the business will also be different. I think what's interesting, of course, and we were discussing it right before you know the show started also was, I think we noticed that a lot of these categories, obviously, there are a lot more women who are new than the next generation of founders really today, especially across South Asia. Mm -hmm. And also we, how we see it as a new generation of female venture capitalists in the space today as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and you shared about how you're very much passionate about this movement. Could you share a little bit more about your thoughts about this space? I think I'm generally very passionate about women owning their power earlier <laughs> because it took me a very long time to find mine and I'm still finding it. I'm definitely not, I mean, I still go through days where I feel literally like a woman in a man's world and then why do I have to take what is given to me? Why can't I simply just take? And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, how we're brought up, how we're conditioned. You know, you shouldn't be too assertive. You shouldn't be too opinionated or your opinions are too strong. It's relative, but it's also people make these comments based on the gender lens that they apply when they, when they, when they meet you, right? So I might say the same thing as a guy next to me, but I might be labeled as too opinionated, but he might just be labeled as confident. 
that for me is frustrating and has been very frustrating for me in my own career because I, you know, I started my career in investment banking before I was a brand manager. So my career has been largely, with the exception of my time at Unilever, very male dominated. The only difference is that Unilever was much more female dominated, but then that does not solve a lot of problems. That's a different <laughs> set of problems, right? And now that I'm in back in venture, it's still very male dominated. And so I'm very passionate about women, empowering younger women to feel confident in standing up for themselves, taking back their power earlier than I figured out how to do for myself. It's an interesting phrase, right? So about women taking back their power earlier. What does that mean? Sounds scary, right? <laughs> <laughs> Let's unpack this. What, what does that mean? You know, I think it's a. I think I, I've never heard this phrase before. I think it's relatively new, even in Southeast Asia, right? So what does that mean to you personally? And how do you see that playing out? I think taking back your power really means, first and foremost, being your, your own cheerleader. But having enough, I guess, self-awareness to not drink your own Kool-Aid. And it has to be done in a way that is empowering as opposed to powerful. Because I, I, I make that distinction because powerful can have negative connotations, but empowering is, is much more positive. And we want to be doing this in a way that empowers other people. So you take your power back so that you can give that out to other people and you can empower them. When you're not empowered or when you have given away your power, you stand in a position of being a victim, of being a victim of your circumstances, of feeling like I can't do anything to change and control the situation happening or happening around me. And that is true to a lot of extent. You cannot control what other people do, but you can control how you view the situation. And if you are able to change your perspective, you then realize that the possibilities of your reactions to that situation, it becomes much broader than he did this or she did this, therefore I'm going to do this, right? That's a reactive position that you're reacting from, right? But if you are able to take a step back and say, okay, they did this, how am I going to respond? How do I want to view this situation? How am I going to turn this situation into something that I can work with. And it might not necessarily give me the best outcome right now, but it will give me a better outcome later. That's what I'm talking about by taking the power back. Because I think a lot of the a lot of young women I hear they say, you know, I hear them say, this happened and therefore it made me feel this way and therefore now I do this XYZ. And I think that's a very a natural, normal human reaction. But taking your power back is going, this happened. I felt like this. I don't like it. I'm going to think of the situation from a different perspective and I'm going to do this differently. Because then that automatically opens the horizons for the possibilities of what can happen. And I think there's an element of maturity that comes into that and an element of experience before you can actually reach that point to think like that. It probably took me... I probably was like 37 or 36 before I reached that point. And I was like, oh my gosh, if I had known that I could change my mind like this, change my own perspective like this earlier, 
man, the things I could have done. <laughs> I don't know what I could have done, but like, I probably wouldn't have been so frustrated. <laughs> what catalyzed that shift for you, right? Because you said that that was later for you and you wish it had been earlier for other folks and even for yourself. Yeah. What would you say catalyzed that shift? Was it like a book or content or people? Like, I'm so curious because I think a lot of people are looking for that catalyst, right? Or whatever that means. So could you share? I was introduced to a program by an ex-colleague and we used to work at Unilever together. And we were kind of like the junior brand managers in the team. And we reported directly to a brand director and there was nobody, nobody in between us. So we were essentially acting like the brand managers. There's usually, you know, you've got your junior brand managers, assistant brand managers, and then you've got a brand manager and then a senior brand manager and then a VP and then a director. And that's kind of what was all of that was missing for us because we were a very small team, even though we were running like a 400 million euro business, a global business, right? We worked very well together. We had different approaches to work. We had different approaches to handling problems. I was very much the action-oriented, let's do something. And I was the opinionated, like, I don't like this. And she was the softer, okay, but how about we do it this way? But she would. we would both have the same frustrations. So what that showed me was that despite having different but complementary approaches to work, different approaches to dealing with a problem. Like I, I was a lot more like action oriented. She was a lot more like, let's think about things before we, we take an action. We were both equally frustrated at certain things. And I asked myself, but why are we frustrated? We're different people. We're different. We shouldn't have, I, I didn't expect us to have the same frustrations, but we were both equally frustrated. And our frustrations were equal in measure. And I always thought that she would be a lot more, she her frustrations would be a lot less than mine because she was so much more measured than I was. And so she, in order to solve her frustration, went to this course called Landmark. Now I'm plugging Landmark, which this is a terrible thing, but I thought it was great. And she was like, oh my gosh, you have to go to this thing. And I said, what is it? And she's like, will you just come? And because I'm asking you, and I was like, okay, that's a very direct ask. And you are literally asking someone for a personal favor. I have never done that. I would not feel comfortable doing that with a work colleague. But she felt, and, and knowing her character, I was like, this is so out of character for her. I'm just going to say yes. And so I went to this thing. It was an introductory, introductory evening. And at the end of it, I said to her, because it was her graduation, she was graduating. It was a three and a half day weekend thing. And I said to her, Apeksha, I think this is a cult. <laughs> and she was like, oh, I knew you would say that. <laughs> and she said, are you going to sign up for it? And I was like, what? It's a cult. And I was like, don't you feel a little bit like a used car salesman? She's like, yes, but are you going to sign up? And I said, yeah, okay, sure, I'll sign up. And I said yes, because she was so convicted. And I could see a huge change in her and how she was dealing with our frustrations at work. And I saw her and I said, I want what you have. I want to be able to let all of these things flow over me like the water off a duck's back and still take the next empowering action. A lot of the times because you're reacting in, and you, your emotions are heightened, you, you are unable to take the next empowering action. You take a reactive action. And so I did it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is a life changer because it completely flipped 
how you view the world and things happening around you on its head. And the minute things are flipped on its head, the power comes back to you because then I realize every action, every decision, every thing I say is at my own discretion. I have full control and I have the ability to change my life every 10 seconds with every decision that I need to make every 10 seconds. If I don't like it, change it in the next 10 seconds. And so I, I did that. And then I you know, went on to do a few more like communications courses, which was all about taking back your power. I was the power of communication. And when I started Adventure, I remember saying to myself, when I have a portfolio large enough with large enough founders, I would want every single founder to attend this course. And yes, people are going to think I'm probably crazy and it's going to, they're going to feel like it's a cult, but it's not going to only make them better leaders. It'll make them better spouses. It'll make them better partners, better people. Everyone will feel so much more empowered to do more, not just in their professional life, but in their personal life, their relationships with their family, their friends. And so it impacts everything. And so that for me was a turning point. Sorry, there's a very long, long answer <laughs> to your question. No, amazing. I really appreciate it, you sharing all of that. On that note, could you share with us about a time that you personally have been brave? Yeah, I think it was uh, when I quit Unilever and really had no idea what I was doing next. That was very out of character for me. I shared a little bit earlier about how my first career was in investment banking. So I started at Goldman in New York in investment banking right out of college. And if anybody understands what that is at that point in time, in order to get that job, you would need to have done at least three summer internships in different investment banks in order to even get your resume seen, let alone having to have the GPA, having to have the right poise when you're presenting yourself, having the right extracurriculars, all of that stuff, right? And so for the longest time, my life was very planned. It was always like, I want to do this. Therefore, I need to do this and this and this today. And the first time I chose to quit Unilever, which is in 2017, it was the first time I deliberately chose to not have a plan. And I was 36 at the time. And to have spent 36 years of your life, like always having a plan, always working towards a plan in order to get to the next step. And suddenly to not have that was very, very scary. Uh, not to mention that my my parents constantly called me and they said, you're crazy. I can't believe you're getting up your work visa. You'll never be able to get a job. And so there's a lot of like uh, external doubt as well, combined with my own internal self-doubt. But I said, no, I, this feels like the right thing to do. And I cannot explain why it felt like the right thing. It just felt like a freeing thing. And I just chose to literally say to my parents, hey, can I come traveling with you? And that was also a very deliberate thing. I had spent most of my life outside of Singapore. And so for me to say to them, I would like to spend time with you as well as your friends, obviously while we're traveling to places that they want to go to, was very deliberate. And they said, okay, yeah, sure. And the reason I chose to do that was primarily because I was actually very bored with talking to my friends I was very bored with my life of, you know, I was living in New York, wake up on Saturday, go to brunch, wake up on Sunday, go to brunch, Saturday night, go out and have a nice dinner, go to a bar. I was very, very bored. And I had different groups of friends, but we all talked about the same things. And I said, no, I need to go and talk to somebody who's actually, in my mind, boring. <laughs> 
at the time. So I said, hey, parents, can I come with you? Can I hang out with your friends? And I did that for a couple of trips. And I realized their friends, they're not people from the same industry. Up until that point, I had all of my industry friends, all of my work friends were people from the same industry, people from the same schools, people from the same job profiles, right? Very, very similar. Their friends were very different. They had somebody who had owned a company, a very boring company, but he loved his job. They had a plastic surgeon, very interesting character, somebody and a bunch of other people, very eclectic, very diverse. And I asked my parents, how did you get to know these people? And they said, oh, it's friends of friends, you know, and now we like each other. And so we travel together. The thing that stuck out for me in talking to all of their friends or just, I didn't actually talk to them. I actually spent two or three weeks with these people, just keeping to myself, but listening to their conversations. And what I took from their conversations and what I heard was that everybody was successful, obviously, because they were able to go on these trips on a whim. And they were very happy. They were very content with what they had achieved in their life, even though their jobs might not necessarily have looked to me with my eyes as the ideal job or the job that would give you happiness. And that's when I realized there is no job that's going to give you happiness. There's no job title. There's no job specificity that's going to give you happiness. And these people are simply happy because they love what they do. For whatever reason, they just love what they do. And so that kind of made me realize that you just have to find the thing that gives you energy, the thing that makes you happy and that makes your heart sing. It makes you want to wake up the next day to do it again. And you would do it for free. And that to me was like the biggest takeaway. And so when I was, when I started doing this, you know, meetings with founders, I was doing it for free, right? I was giving them my advice from someone who has operated a business from a brand manager's point of view, from an insights led point of view. They felt like I was asking them questions that nobody has asked them before. And I felt like I was adding value there. Obviously, over the time that I spent with these founders, I came across a few companies that I wanted to angel invest in. So I did that. And so then I realized, wow, I'm doing this VC thing for free and I'm also putting in my own money. This is a very expensive side hobby. If only somebody would pay me to do this as a job. <laughs> but that's kind of when I realized, okay, this is a thing and I have to follow the energy. I talked about following the energy before. And so for me, that whole process of just simply trusting where the cards will fall, trust the universe, whatever you want to call it. If you're a religious God, just trust the process let things bubble up. That was such a huge detraction from how I normally planned my life that it required, yeah, a shit ton of courage. Can I say that on the podcast? <laughs> yeah, you can. Awesome. That's amazing. You know, I love to kind of like paraphrase the three big themes that I got from this conversation. The first, of course, is I think thank you so much for sharing about how women can take back their power earlier. I love how you talked about it from your own personal perspective and how you discovered that later in your career and how you wish that you could have discovered it earlier, but also how other folks could also discover it earlier as well. And I love how you unpacked it in terms of not just language, but also what it means in the daily uh, habits and workforce arrangements. The second, of course, is I really appreciated you talking about your prior experience as a brand manager in consumer packaged goods in terms of consumer wants and needs and how that translates to a startup world in terms of how founders and VCs should be thoughtful about how to package, but also what to deliver in the context of does the future need this? Does the consumer want this? Right? Does the world need this? 
And lastly, I love, um, I think, you sharing about your own experiences in preventing folks from drinking their own Kuwait. Uh, so, you know, talking about how you help coach executive teams and founders go through the five whys and think through what exactly they need to do to stay in touch with their customers and also, as a result, the company's uh, growth and future. So, thank you so much for coming on the show, Hui Ting. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I had a great chat. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyao.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. <laughs>